The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk about this labor number. Again, I thought it was pretty good. It came in a little bit better than expected. Uh, unemployment rate ticked up, but we had some you know, higher uh, participation, which is something people have been talking about for a long time. Uh, but let's check in with our good friend Tom Gimble. He's a founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. Tom, it looked pretty solid from my perspective, and I'd love to get your thoughts because you're talking to these companies every day about filling open slots. I feel like we're doing Groundhog Day every month, guys. I mean, 315,000 jobs, the participation rate's up. It, what, what it shows is is that the ADP numbers are crazy. They don't know what they're doing. It shows that the economy's still strong. And like the football season, the, the college football season that you omitted from the conversation a few minutes ago, correct, that starts tonight, uh, we're kicking off the fall season, the last third of the year, with a great economy and a great jobs report. The TCU Horn Frogs are coming into Boulder, Colorado tonight to take along the Colorado Bucks. You know what? I, gra I, I graduated in 94. Boulder isn't what it was. Really? How so? Well, I mean, I was saying from football, from the economy, yes. Boulder's unbelievable and expensive. Right. The football team yeah, I know. just can't right. get it. it. It never should have left the Big 12, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I agree. So, but um, this isn't really helpful in terms of lowering inflation, though, Tom, is it? I mean, we did have a ton of job openings, but, uh, well, we had a ton of job openings. We're adding a ton of jobs. Average hourly earnings are up more than 5%. Um, does that help bring down inflation? You know, uh, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I, uh, you go out for dinner and, and things may be a little bit more expensive here and there. People want to say that we're in the mid-1970s again, and we're not. Now, there's a difference between this economy and every other that we've ever been in. And, and those differences are, A, it's truly a global world. Number two, we have a real supply chain shortage that we've never had in this country before. And number three, we're still feeling the after effects of a global pandemic. And people want to have A plus B equals C uh, according to normal historical economics. And it's just not that way anymore. Tom, when you talk to your clients, your companies that are looking to fill jobs, kind of give us a sense of what their biggest challenges are. Do they, do they just have to pay more? Do they have to be touchy-feely and have fun things in the office. What are some of the challenges that they really face in filling these openings? The number one challenge that every company's facing is they want to get their people in the office more than what they currently are, uh, and they're afraid of turnover. And as long as unemployment is at record lows, 
even with a two-tenths of a percent uptick today. As long as it's at record lows, they're afraid to do what they think is best for the business. And the only way that it's going to turn is when unemployment really rises and you see it at four and a half, five, five and a half, which I don't see it happening in the near future, but that will eventually happen because everything runs in cycles and then it'll go back and, and we'll go through a cycle again. That's, that's how things work. Well, the Fed probably wants to see that as soon as possible. I know everyone's a macro tourist these days. Um, I'm very guilty of that. But doesn't this just give the Fed ammunition to go 75 and 75? It does. And, and, and I got news for you. That's what it should be doing, and it should have done it last year. And we need that because if we ever get into an air quotes real recession, we're going to need that lever. We're not in a real re- people say, oh, they're going to kill the economy. The economy's doing great. What it shows is, is the economy's so strong, it can run when money isn't free. Isn't that the whole point? Yeah, well, that's a great point, actually. And yep. um, that's something I haven't heard a lot of people saying lately. But you might as well build up a war chest. I know that's not the primary reason to raise rates, but if that's a secondary effect, I'll take it. Well, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean it's not the primary reason? We started raising, the Fed started raising interest rates before there was inflation, and everybody said it should have happened last year when there wasn't inflation. The primary reason to have interest no, rates. No, no, no. Inflation already, inflation was already, uh, last year oh, was God. the transitory debate, right? Last year was, dude, last year was when housing prices started going insane. Last year was when you couldn't buy a car. Last year was when used cars cost 20% more than new cars. Because Inf- of supply chain issues, not because of inflation, because you couldn't get a car. It was a supply and demand issue, not an inflationary issue. Tom, if I go down to Austin, Texas, can I get a job or in Florida? That's where everybody's flowing. Are there regional differences out there? Yeah, there's always regional differences. And I've said that on your show a million times is that the problem is, is that we look at unemployment for the most part as a a United States issue. And it's really, uh, it's very regionally driven. And, And the same with wages. Who cares what the wages are in New York City versus it's really what they are in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. I mean, we've got to figure out how to how to look at things more regionally and that'll attract people. But we live in a world where people are so entitled. This isn't the 1700s. People aren't going to go out west for a job anymore. People aren't going to leave Manhattan to go to work in Oklahoma when they know that the government's going to bail them out to live in New York. (laughs) It's right. He's right. He's not Uh, wrong. You know, it's a shame job day is only one day a month because we could have Tom on like, you know, much more we should frequently. take our show to him. Where is him? I don't know where he he's is. He's in Chicago, right? Chicago? Yeah, I guess. All right, Tom Gimble, he's the founder and CEO of LaSalle Network. That's right. Uh, and LaSalle Network, they're one of the big staffing uh, recruiting companies in the country. So Tom knows what he's talking about when it comes to how do you fill up these jobs? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, let's get some more color on these jobs numbers. Uh, John Golnack, uh, vice president for ADECO, joins us. Hey, John, what's your takeaway uh, from these jobs numbers today? Again, a little bit better than expected, weaker than the prior month, but still pretty decent. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think this is a good report. And, and the term Fed friendly, I think you guys are putting the right color on this right now. I think there's two things from this report that really stand out to me. Um, one, 
you know, the average hourly earnings month over month, we were expecting 0.4% and it came in 0.3%. And I think that wage deceleration, it's still growing, but not, not as, not as hyper as it was before. Good point. I think that's a fed friendly. I think that's a fed friendly metric, right? Right. Well, in in the sense that they want to bring inflation down, but um, it doesn't give them ammunition to hike. So maybe that's why that's a really good point. The other thing I'm going to guess is is, uh, participation rate, right? Right. Participation rate is up, which drives the unemployment rate a little bit. So even though that we've seen the unemployment rate at 3.7 versus the 3.5, the participation that we saw in the labor market was more than expected. It's not a one for one correlation on the math there, but there's a driving force. So for me, overall, I look at the last three months, you know, we've averaged 378,000 jobs. In 2019, I mean, that, that, that was 164. Hmm. I think the economy is resilient. We still have a lot of need out there for a lot of employers. Um, you know, again, I think like everybody else, I think the Fed is, is happy with this report. I think I'm hopeful that it's not a full 75. I'm hopeful that it's a 50. And then to your guys' point, we wait for the next set of data to come out. Thank but, goodness we um, had you on, John, because you've just answered a, what was a big question mark over my head. Um, and, and it's really a reframing of my idea of what the Fed wants. Um, they really want, at the end of the day, to bring un- uh, inflation down and they probably don't want to have to hike as much as they can. So um, ADECO is the biggest, uh, you know, workforce placement, workforce solutions firm in the world. So um, maybe you can answer another conundrum that we've been struggling with here. We're getting uh, layoff announcements left and right, and not little ones, right? Um, Big 20% or 10% uh, of whole workforce job cuts. And yet... The JOLTS number was 11.8 million job openings. I mean, almost a record high amount of job openings. How can you um, put those two things together? Yeah, you know, I think it's it, there's a lot of things you have to look at in our economy, and you have to look at it from sector to sector, right? You know, we saw we saw in July that you know service based hospitality leisure it, it was crazy high. It was 96,000 in July. And only 31,000 this month. Wow, what a dip, right? Well, not really. What a super spike, right? People, people are in the summertime season. They're getting some traveling done. They're getting some traveling done before the school season starts again. It makes sense. A little bit more people are, are, are free to travel with you know, pandemic restrictions, um, and they want to get back out there. So that makes sense. But what we look at that's, that's really driving, you know, retail. We saw huge retail layoff announcements, you know, when we saw Walmart announce plans. We saw some other folks. But we're still seeing a massive need. I can't go to I can't go to any storefront without seeing that we're hiring sign. You know, hey, we're hiring key holders. We're looking for managers, assistant managers in retail. Um, the demand is huge because I think our workforce that used to fill these jobs, right? They were impacted in tremendously from COVID. Your servers, your bartenders, your waiters, your people that relied on this, the, the tips business, right? The, the foot traffic. They had to find other ways in a gig economy. So, so now returning back to that nine to five, you know, let me be in one place. Let me, let me punch a clock. There's a culture shift. We're, we're adjusting. So I think that's part of it as, as we look for more labor participation in that, you know, 16 to, to 22 year bucket to fill some of these roles that have historically been filled by them in the past. But what I'm most excited about, to be honest with you, about, about the job need and demand is there's, there's a huge need and demand in manufacturing and supply chain and logistics. When, when, when COVID impacted yeah. us and, and we were dependent on foreign goods, man, that woke a lot of people up that we needed to, to resurge our manufacturing base here. And, and that's where we see continued demand, fill in second, third right. shifts. How do, how do we get more participation there? So 
until we solve that riddle, I think I think we're going to see some steam, you know, in, in this jobs number for quite some time. That's good stuff. Uh, good numbers. Uh, good analysis. John Golnack, Chief Research Officer, VP at ADECO. And a shout um, out to your former or your future job, I should say. My future job as a greeter. Oh, darn right. At I'm Walmart. Be a greeter at Walmart. I'm going to be a darn good one, and they better be ready for me coming up in a few years. Bringing our next guest, Kate Duchesne, CEO of RGP. RGP is Resources Global Professionals. It's the operating arm of Resources Connections, which is a publicly traded company. RGP is a ticker you can put into your Bloomberg uh, terminal. Uh, about a $660 million market cap company based in Irvine, California. The stock's up about 10% uh, this year. The company provides consulting services across a wide range of business issues. Kate, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, we had a pretty good jobs number today. I'd love to hear what your companies that you talk to and you consult with on the human resources front, what's their biggest issue? Is it just getting bodies in the door or are they even trying to still figure out the hybrid work thing? What are some of the big issues that you're hearing from your clients? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm certainly happy to be here. So it's a multitude of issues. I think uh, certainly the war for talent is still tight. Um, but as we're seeing um, jobs increase and, and labor participation uh, increase a little bit, that's good news. Uh, but I think going forward, one of the biggest issues is how are people working when they return to the workforce? And so that means is it hybrid? Um, when do you work, how do you work, and building more flexibility and agility into workforce planning. Uh, those are the kind of discussions that we're really having with clients, especially in the face of recessionary worries. You know, how do you get work done uh, in more creative ways? So you advise primarily financial firms, right? I mean, finance, accounting, and maybe IT finance management. and accounting is right is our core because Project management I, yeah. I've been thinking about this um, from the client perspective right if I hire a finance firm I'm gonna pay good money for their staff to do what I want when I want I don't want their staff to be working from home I don't want them to be taking off Labor Day weekend I don't want them to be worried about work-life balance I just want them to do what I want when I want so how do you um, how do you square that with companies that are trying to like be kinder and gentler to their workforce? Well, I think we all have to recognize that the world of work has fundamentally changed post-pandemic and talent is really in the driver's seat. So I understand the perspective that you just shared, but really the world is different. And I think that what creative companies and what companies that are really thriving understand is that there isn't a black and white answer here, that you have to find a middle ground uh, that works both from a business perspective and from a talent perspective. And so there's a lot of creativity happening. There's a lot of work that's been delivered remotely, or we use a term borderless talent, meaning that we can better match in today's environment talent to the exact client need if a client is willing to be more creative about when, where, how that work gets done. Um, so we might find the perfect financial professional for a client engagement, but that person might sit in Dublin um, or in London or in Atlanta. And so if a client's thinking can shift to say, I don't need them in the cubicle next door, it really opens the aperture of talent availability. 
How do you think about, I mean, Kate, I'm a little <clears throat> bit old school. I, you know, I kind of came up on Wall Street where you really did put in the hours and then you built up that camaraderie and you built up your relationships. Right. Um, and, and still today at this later stage of my career, the relationships are, are absolutely the most valuable thing I take away from my career. And I think a lot of people generally agree with that. But that seems like it, it, it w might get lost here in this new hybrid world or work from home world. How do you think about that? How do your companies think about that? Well, I think that the 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 balance is important. And so, you know, we go back to the word hybrid, but I think it's a little of both. Um, there's certainly benefits to be um, found in collaboration learning. So what we're talking to clients about is spend those days in the office in really meaningful ways. Don't spend them on Zoom calls or on individually oriented work. When you're in the office, be together. Have learning moments. Have collaboration sessions. And when you're not in the office, that's when you do your head down work, which we all have a lot of that as well. Um, so you need, you need to learn to work differently. And, and that, I think, will be the predominant um, path forward as we continue to recover in this economy. This it's something... not all one way or the other. This is something that Paul and I talk about all the time because I'm convinced that a lot of that can be done in can actually be done in the metaverse or whatever we're calling this right. world right now. Um, I could be wrong about that, but listen, I want to ask about your company. You have, at least from a stock perspective, trounced um, whatever benchmark index I want to put you up against. If I look over also any period over the last year, over the last two years, over the last five years, you've beaten the. Um, S&P small cap index, the Russell 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, the S&P 500. Um, wh what are you doing right, you think, that investors appreciate? We're taking care of our people. I mean, we're really listening. We've, we've become really a learning and a listening organization, and that's listening both to how companies need to get work done, especially around project orientation as they face transformation and disruption. And we're listening to people and how they want to be treated. I mean, our core workforce, um, Paul and Matt, are experienced, hired, diverse professionals who, you know, they're in the middle probably or later stages of their career. So they already know their work. They know their subject matter and their expertise. And they want to be appreciated and work with more flexibility, transparency, choice, and control, and we're really giving the talent market what they want today, and that's really helped us thrive. How about the industry? I mean, do you think more, um, you know, financial leaders who are, you know, like mm -hmm. Paul's age, um, are coming to you for help <laughs> in this new world? They are, because what we see, you know, 20 years ago, a large enterprise might have one transformation project going on at the same time, one or two. Fast forward to today, transformation is happening everywhere in large organizations. So your transformation agenda looks something like 20 to 25 concurrent projects. No organization is staffed up for that much change, and so you need a trusted partner to say, can you bring the expertise and the additional bandwidth I need? And that's really where we play. We partner with our clients to co-deliver uh, on their transformation projects. And a lot of them are related to um, finance systems, transactions, regulatory change, et cetera. So we're a perfect um, adjunct to the init business initiatives they're trying to accomplish. 
All right, Kate Duchesne, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate getting your perspective on the workforce, on the hiring environment, on the work environment. Still a work in progress for a lot of companies. Kate Duchesne, CEO of RGP. I saw some news about over the last you know week or so. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Jeffries, all talking tough. Yeah. About this time, we mean it. After Labor Day, we want you guys back in the office. But I have to agree with Kate that it's a different, it's going to be a different work environment than yep. it was pre-pandemic. Totally. So, yes, they want you to come in probably um, three, four, five days a week, uh, but not every single week. And they're willing to be more flexible than they were before. Yep. And they realize they can get a lot more done for cheaper than they could before. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. But certainly that's kind of where it appears to be moving. Good jobs day today. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, we know our Federal Reserve is raising rates, but they're also engaging in something called quantitative tightening. I'm not really sure what that is. I don't really do that stuff for a living, but Kevin Muir does. He's a prop trader for Windor Capital. Uh, he's also the author of the Macro Tourist Newsletter, and he's also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. And Kevin, I know you had a column out recently where you say we shouldn't really fear QT, but first, for equity geeks like me, what is quantitative tightening, and how's the Fed doing it? Well, good morning, Paul. Um, the quantitative tightening is the opposite of quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is when the Federal Reserve goes out and buys bonds or other assets for its balance sheet, basically putting money into the system and taking financial instruments out. Quantitative tightening would be the opposite, meaning that it shrinks its balance sheet either by letting those bonds run off or in extreme cases, actually selling those bonds. So should we be concerned that the Fed is talking about quantitative tightening and or just kind of what do we know about their policies and, and what do you think about QT? Well, first of all, the Fed's doing a lot more than talking about quantitative tightening. They've actually scheduled it and they've so far they've agreed that they're going to let the balance sheet run off by forty seven and a half billion dollars per month. And they're increasing that to ninety five billion starting in September. And this is what the market's a little concerned about, because that seems like a large number. And if we think about quantitative easing, quantitative easing was the process of putting money out into the system and trying to make things better. And it actually has the uh, kind of the intended consequence of easing financial conditions. If we think the quantitative tightening is the opposite, we should expect that to tighten financial conditions, i.e. send stocks down. Unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot more to this story, and that's kind of what the, uh, the topic of my letter is, that it's not as easy as just taking the S&P 500 and superimposing the Fed's balance sheet on it and saying one, one's going up, the other one's going, uh, you know, the S&P will follow, and then when the Fed's balance sheet goes lower, that the S&P will follow it lower as well. So, Kevin, this, the size of this is what matters here when it comes to they've done this before and that they've tried to at least uh, 2015 through 2018, a massive rate hike cycle where they did try to pull back on quantitative uh, easing. But this is only the second time that they've done it. And the first time they tried, they didn't even do it completely. What are the odds they're actually successful in this operation? So, Creedy, you're absolutely correct. The um, in the 
post-GFC era, the Federal Reserve expanded their balance sheet from $1 trillion to roughly four. And they went to four and a half trillion and they tried to go in and put the, their, the economy on a policy where they would shrink that. And they only managed to get it back to three then three quarters before they had to halt the quantitative tightening. And that was for a variety of different factors. And that is why the market is very concerned about this quantitative tightening that the Fed's going to embark on now. But I would contend that this is a much different situation than in 2015 when they tried to do quantitative tightening. And the main point that uh, is often missed is that with the extraordinary amount of stimulus that the Federal Reserve did in the post-COVID era, and it wasn't just the, the Federal Reserve, it was also the fiscal stimulus that it did, there is so much extra liquidity in the system that the Federal Reserve needs to engage in what's known as reverse repos. And reverse repos are when they take the collateral, the high quality bonds that are on their balance sheet, and they go and lend it out into the market for a short period of time so that it soaks up some of the liquidity. Imagine it that there's just so much money out there that if the Federal Reserve didn't do this, what would happen would be the target rate would fall below the interest rate that they're trying to set. So there's this overnight reverse repo has gone from zero uh, a year ago to $2.2 trillion. And that's just a, a function of how much liquidity is out there. And so when we think about this quantitative tightening and we think, oh, geez, it's, you know, we're going from $47.5 billion to $95 billion a month. It sure sounds like a little big number. Well, it's a big number, except that there's $2.2 trillion of excess liquidity out there that the Fed is soaking up, soaking up every single night in reverse repos. And so when I think about what potentially could happen, yes, there is a duration mismatch, meaning that the Federal Reserve doesn't own the exact same thing that the market players that are engaging in the reverse repos want. But in terms of the total amount of liquidity, they're having to soak up all this extra liquidity. So as they let their right. balance sheet run down, I suspect the reverse repo will also run down, offsetting it. Good stuff. All right, Kevin, thank you. That's what I call inside baseball. That's the plumbing of the markets. Kevin Muir, prop trader for Windor uh, Capital. Talk about some quantitative tightening. It's, uh, you know, as Critty was pointing out, it's something we don't experience in the marketplace that often. It does, it does happen, but not that often. It just seems like we've been talking about forever quantitative easing and the easy uh, money conditions in the marketplace. And uh, that is clearly uh, changing here as we talk about the Fed raising interest rates. We heard from Jackson Hole uh, last week. They are on a tear there to fight inflation. All right, let's talk electric vehicles. And we're not, it's not just electric cars. We got trucks. They're on the way. I drove the Ford F-150 uh, Lightning, and uh, it's awesome. Matt read a story about boats, uh, all kinds of stuff uh, coming to the EV space. Uh, Rajesh Jajurikar is an executive director for auto and farm sectors at Mahindra Group. Uh, he joins us to talk about what they're doing. Rajesh, love to just know what you guys at Mahindra Group are doing in the EV space. Yeah, Paul, uh, firstly, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning and especially to talk about our electric plans. Uh, as you know, we are a leading SUV player in India, actually number one by revenue. And as we look at the future, we believe that electric SUVs will be a significant part of that long-term plan. So when we started thinking about where we should be headed from here, we thought 
and we have planned for about 25% of our volumes in SUVs coming out of electric vehicles by around the year 2027. So we put together a plan to help us get that kind of a electric SUV vehicle volume in the Indian domestic market to begin with. Talk to us about just kind of where India is right now in terms of the EV market here in the States. Obviously, as, as I'm sure you're aware, Tesla has you know, yeah. led the way completely. But now we've got all the major global OEMs, you know, kind of throwing uh, their hats into the ring. Talk to us about the Indian market. So, so, Paul, in India, the electric penetration at the moment is at a very nascent stage of evolution. We are seeing a much faster electric penetration in the small commercial vehicles, which is really the three-wheeler space, and we have a strong presence there, uh, where our three-wheeler electric vehicles have a market share of 70%. And here the electric penetration is as high as 10%, and we are seeing it grow very rapidly month on month. Uh, the penetration, as I said, in the passenger vehicle space is still very small, uh, 2 to 3%. Uh, we are expecting this to grow very significantly over the next four or five years as uh, better technology comes into vehicles, as charging infra improves, and of course the evolving Indian consumer who is now inclined to adopt electric vehicles. The government, the Indian government is also putting a lot of emphasis on uh, promoting electric vehicles, enabling electric vehicle conversion, and have put in place several uh, subsidies uh, to enable that, as well as investment-linked incentives to promote investments in the electric vehicle space. I know well, Mahindra is, you know, obviously a large player in, in the tractor business and that side of the vehicle business. How is the EV revolution going to impact that part? Do you think? Uh, also, you know, like you rightly said, in the Indian market, we have a strong presence in the tractor business. We are number one with the. 1% market share of a very large volume. So we sell over 300,000 tractors a year in India. We also have a very good presence in North America and building a very strong brand. And I think some of some of your listeners would have seen us on the NASCAR more recently, right. uh, doing very well there. So, you know, the brand is getting strong. We are a number three player in the less than 100 horsepower segment. We so think the electric uh, part of the tractor business in North America will, you know, evolve faster than it will in India. And the reason for that is in India, in mainstream ag applications, uh, typically, you know, the tractor is a prime mover for other implements, and that means a very high torque or a backup torque. And that doesn't quite come as easily, uh, you know, with electric. But in North America, where, you know, in the smaller, less than 100 horsepower segment, we see uh, you know, lawn moving, hay, you know, applications of the kind uh, that we participate in with rural lifestylers. We think electric will evolve over the next three to four years. Talk us about, you know, one of the, uh, you know, challenges logistically, even here in the United States, as, as more and more uh, people go electric, is going to be the charging station infrastructure. And there's just, it, for a lot of parts of this country, I just don't see it happening you know, it's going to take a big, big undertaking. And I would think it would be by orders of magnitude even more difficult in India. How does when you, how do you and other industry participants see the rollout, the evolution of the charging infrastructure in India? Yeah, so, you know, the government is committed, uh, Paul, to create a charging infra. And a lot of the 
uh, fuel stations, there's a roadmap to convert them into energy stations as we go forward. A lot of startups are getting in the space as well. But what we are seeing as, you know, the first stage adoption of the electric revolution in India will happen a lot around private charging stations. Okay. You know, so people in their house, either in their homes or your know, houses or in housing complexes or at place of work would start moving into, you know, private charging. And uh, to begin with, we think that in the personal segment, electric penetration will happen with in those households who either have to just operate within a known operating circle, like, example, doctors going to their hospitals for uh, work, you know, the nature of movement is predictable, or people with multi-cars, uh, you know, who are less worried about range anxiety and hence less worried about charging infra. And which is why we think over the next four to five years, a 20 to 30 percent penetration of this uh, segment using electric is a reasonable assumption. Just to real quick. Beyond that is going to be, sorry, Paul, the OT. Just real quick, just where are the uh, non-Indian manufacturers in India, the, the Volkswagens of the world and, and, and others? Are they in India in a big way? In electric? Yes. Uh, no, so actually uh, not at all at the moment. Right. So we have, uh, you know, quite significantly Tata, and then we are launching, uh, revealing actually on the 8th and 9th of September, which is the World EV Day, a product called the XUV 400, which uh, is a 4.2-meter vehicle, hmm. uh, okay. electric, which we will launch. Uh, we, interestingly, do though have a tie-up for our Inglo platform with Volkswagen, where uh, we will be using the components from their MEB platform, right. uh, more specifically the battery cells and the motors, okay. uh, as a part of the Inglo platform on which we'll be building four to five new SUVs. All right, great stuff. Rajesh Dajurakar, Executive Director, Auto and Farm Sectors for Mahindra Group uh, out of India. They are going electric like everybody else, it seems. Coming up, Balance of Power. Joe Matthew sitting in for David Weston today. He'll drive the conversation forward. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.